Dude, it is June 18th. <laughs> yeah. So I'm hoping we can crank out an episode by the end of May. What do you think? Okay. <laughs> were we planning to do nine this summer? Eight or nine, man. With a vengeance, we were going to come in. Every week? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's June 18th. We haven't recorded one. Mm-hmm. Now, note this June 18th, not when this is dropping, when we're actually <laughs> recording something. Lord knows when it will actually be out. <laughs> <laughs> because it's a Friday, and uh-huh. I try not to work on the weekends. It yeah. sure as heck ain't dropping on Tuesday, I will tell you that. Oh, okay. Oh, don't give me that disappointed uh, oh. oh. Wow, where's your commitment? <laughs> <laughs> Let's think about the different gags that we had thought about. Mm-hmm. It all started with court-ordered summer school. Oh, man, we had so much shtick worked up for that. Which we did nothing with. No. What were some of the other ones? We had a variant of drunk history. Yeah. (laughs) And that was going to be fun. Yeah, which this may turn into inadvertently. I don't know. Some variant of Oprah's book club. Yes. (laughs) That was admittedly shorter lived. Yeah, there was a version of not literally A&E biography, but sort of that welcome to, you know, the whole thing. And with a caveat that we add it with like behind the music. Yes. And then Pearson discovered heroin. (laughs) Exactly. Yep, that fell by the roadside. So I don't know where we're left. So where we are now, I think. Yeah is some variant of drinks by the poolside hmm. that we record when we feel like it. I'm in. I <laughs> This is so well thought out unlike the rest <laughs> like, unlike all the rest of our stuff. Yeah, totally. It is consistent with life, right? Is how mm-hmm. many summers have you had where on like May 1st you laid out your aspirations for the summer because oh, yeah. you've got nothing to do, right? No classes to I teach, know. no faculty meetings, no student meetings. You are going to get up at eight in the morning oh. and you don't have anything for the entire day. <laughs> you say getting up at eight in the morning like that's early. <laughs> that's four hours later than I usually get up. Which is an issue in and of itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... <laughs> Then you suddenly look at the calendar, and it's June 18th. June 18th, yeah. And we've done nothing. Not a thing. Well, we've thought about stuff. We exchanged a lot of texts. I think we did. I think most of them were around what song clips could we use for a summer school theme. It's true. I'm going to pick one here. Van Halen's Hot for Teacher. That's totally a summer school theme, right? Yes. Um, yes. Well, for me, growing up, one of the biggest summer songs was uh, Alice Cooper, School's Out. Right, so one summer song that actually spoke to two generations was Dancing in the Street, originally Martha and the Vandellas, remade by Van Halen. And then one of my favorite, all right, this will date us both. Okay. Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff. That is an excellent choice, though, I have to say. School is out and this sort of a buzz. But back then I didn't really know what it was. But now I see what happened is the way that people respond to summer madness. That is an awesome song. And if you are bored and at a computer, mm-hmm. Pull that video up on YouTube, mm-hmm. and it is the most awesome song and the most awesome video. Summer in Philadelphia. Agreed. We've got a summer theme. We're poolside. We got the music set up. Remind me what we're doing. I don't remember now. Um, <laughs> should we have a special Cupod summer theme itself? Oh, Tate can play something. Yeah. I am going to assign that your son Tate play... A jazzed rift version of Summertime. And if I just say that to him, he will know exactly what that means? Yeah, because he's cool. <laughs> okay. Done. And no video games until he does it.
Tate, I need a favor. Yes. Um, so Patrick said that he needs you to do um, like something jazzy for the summer quantitude stuff. Oh, does he? Because I seem to recall that last season he replaced my saxophone with something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But can you at least do this just for the summer? To be clear, I'm doing this for you and not Patrick. All right, that's cool. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Fine. Now all we need is what we're actually going to talk about. (laughs) Okay, so here's what I recommend. We're going to put in his theme music right here, and then when the song is over, we will have decided what we're going to do. You ready? Okay. I like that, that you're living in a post-processing world, because we don't have the song yet. (laughs) Time means nothing to me. (laughs) So you and I are going to pause to leave a flat spot in the audio so that we can insert that. But you and I are just going to stare at each other over Zoom and say, dude, it's June 18th. (laughs) Yep. Welcome. My name is Patrick Kern, and along with my poolside friend Greg Hancock, we make up Quantitude. We are a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, I don't know what we're going to talk about. So we're going to listen to Tate play saxophone for a little bit, and when we come back, hopefully Greg and I will have an idea. I hope that you enjoy whatever the episode is going to be. And we're back. We never left, really, and we're still kind of screwed because we have no idea what, what are we we're doing? doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for starters, I think we need some poolside <gasps> sounds. Okay, so here these are. There. Now we are poolside. You're good. All right. You and ah. I are slathered in 150 SPF. <laughs> we are under an umbrella because I don't know how many of you out there have actually met us. But if I walk uh-huh. out in the sun, I show up on radar at RDU Airport. <laughs> I got an idea yep. for what we should do. All right, sir. What is it? We don't know how many episodes we're going to do this summer. Maybe two, maybe three episodes. We thought that we would just kind of shoot the bull about history, history of stat. Where did things come from? We get very excited about what we're doing, our new models, a new release of a computer program, and we should be excited. We're excited Mm -hmm. and we're proud and we're looking at all the new ways that we can apply these things, but we forget where we came from. Mm -hmm. When you go back and look at the old stuff, it is humbling that these people were wrestling with the same things we are Mm -hmm. 100 years ago. Yeah. It's a little sad that we continue to wrestle with them, right? Is think about one of the Wright brothers was alive when Chuck Yeager <laughs> broke the sound barrier. <laughs> yeah. That is scientific progress. Yeah. You go back and read some of these things from 100 years ago in Quant, and they're laying out some very similar problems that we're dealing with now. So you're a totally history guy. I know this about you. You are inevitably curled up on your back deck or in your living room in front of the fireplace reading Winston Churchill or the nine-volume set on naval battles of the Pacific or (laughs) whatever. You are so hyperbolic. Oh, whatever. It's four. Okay. It's four volumes. (laughs) Okay. Don't make me look bad. (laughs) And I am traditionally not history guy, but I have to say I totally agree with this as a theme for a variety of reasons. It turns out the history of statistics is actually pretty interesting. You know, how these people came up with the ideas, the contexts in which these ideas evolved. Because the way we encounter them now, they are these fairly neatly packaged things that look like a coherent whole. And in many cases they are, but they didn't start off that way. And so it's nice to know where these things came from, first of all, and a little bit about the people who were the progenitors of these things. But also, pretty much everything we do is understandable. And when you go back to some of the historical foundations, you understand what those building blocks were. And you go, oh, that kind of makes sense, right? You look at the complex stuff that we do today, and it can be overwhelming, daunting. But if you go back to some of these incremental steps, you start to realize that where we are today is really just a sequence of really cool incremental ideas that are understandable. You know, something that you had talked about was the idea of having things at your fingertips. Mm. Maybe some of this is really in line with that, that we should have a bit about what our origins are at our fingertips. I really like that. If you're quanti, you should have in your back pocket who was Pearson. Mm -hmm. 
Who was Fisher? Who was Gossett? And in a sentence or two, be able to describe at a cocktail party, what did they do? What was their contributions? Maybe what were their limitations? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is I think that there's a responsibility to know these people historically of where you came. So I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, and they have a wonderful library. And over the library is a quote chiseled into the granite that I love both because of the historical statement it makes, but also it has a grammatical error in it. And so the quote as is carved is, who knows only his own generation remains a child. So first, when you start with who, it actually poses it as a question. <laughs> yeah, you didn't inflect. Who knows only who? his own generation remains a child? Who knows, who knows that? Anyone? Anyone? Uh -huh. If there was enough space, they might have put he who knows mm -hmm. only his own generation. One is I like that just as a statement. Is if you only know what you do, what's in front of you, what is in M plus version 8, or in the most recent release of Levon, if that's all you know, you don't know where you came from and what brought us to where we are today. And so I like that. The other one, though, and is something that we just need to embrace is that's male gendered. He who knows his. Mm -hmm. And what we do find is historically, this entire arc that we're going to talk about are dominated by white men. Yes. And not only by white men, but some of whom were leading thinkers in the eugenics movement. I think that's always going to be a backdrop in the things that we talk about. And it would be nice if we have some plans to be able to address that more thoroughly in some coming episode. I don't think we'll have time to unpack that right now. It might come out a little bit, but I think we should commit to talking about that more fully. Yeah. So as you listen, we're going to talk about some of these titans in the field, some of the really old guys. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to focus on Pearson, Fisher, Gossett, Neiman, that cluster. We are going to focus on the quant aspects. There are two issues, really. One is there were very important people who were not white men making significant contributions to the field. Yes. And also, we need to have a very thoughtful conversation about eugenics, what it was, where it came from, and who was involved because some of these major players yeah. were leaders in the thinking of eugenics. Sir Francis Galton. Yeah, huge. Is R.A. Fisher. Yeah. Just simply know as we're poolside and talking about that, is that is something we're aware of, that is something that's very important to us, and that is something that we're going to do better justice to in a future episode. Thank you. Good. Here's what I would suggest. I would like to touch base on some of the old guys, like old, old guys. Old, old. Super old. Not Socrates. We can always oh. go back to Socrates, right? Oh, <laughs> Socrates once said, get thy a fig leaf. And somehow that was the start of probability <laughs> theory. The <laughs> get thy a fig leaf. That's the worst. Okay. Uh, yeah, I get it. And um, I don't know. It's uh -huh. a cross of Socrates and Shakespeare. Dear God. And they all wore fig leaves then. Right. I, I don't know. All right. I don't want to go back that far, but can I start us off? Please. The Chevalier de Mer. Ha-ha! <laughs> <laughs> well, please. Oh, so you want to play dice? <laughs> well, please say more. Okay, maybe we should just stop doing that entirely. So we can get in the Wayback Machine. Oh, another idea we had was going to be uh, Greg and Pat's Excellent <laughs> Adventure. Do you remember that oh. one? was rather short-lived. <laughs> Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> awesome. Dudes, you guys are going to go back in time. You are going to have the most excellent adventure through history. All right, so it was going to be Greg and Pat's Excellent Adventure. Or we can just do the Wayback Machine. What was it the cartoon who did that? It was the dog, the talking dog. Sherman and Peabody? Sherman and Peabody. Yeah. Why are you two dressed like ancient Greeks? You use the Wayback! So we're going to get the Wayback Machine, and we'll go back 1600s. I won't go back before then. Mm -hmm. One thing that all of us should embrace is our very livelihood came out of gambling. Oh, yeah. That's why we exist. Absolutely. It was all dice and was it a stragglus? What's the name of the sheep bone? You're going to go back to sheep bones. You mock me going to Socrates, but you're going to debone a sheep? <laughs> For science. Science! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
I'm sorry. I just pictured an entire hillside of boneless sheep <laughs> trying to eat grass, uh-huh. just laying there, just trying to go. <laughs> okay. So Chevalier de Mer was a gambler and was fascinated by games of chance and particularly games of dice. And he wanted to understand what became expected values. Hmm. An expected value is what are your expected winnings in this game of chance if you play this sufficiently long? He didn't have the math chops Mm -hmm. to do the derivations. So how would you like to have as your friend Pascal? (laughs) It's like a call a friend, but oh, by the way, it's Pascal. Yes, the Pascal, the mathematician, the philosopher. The triangle. Pascal's (laughs) triangle. My brother, I'm talking to you, not devil's triangle. It's Pascal's (laughs) triangle. So just so you're staying along as you're out mowing the lawn. So we're in the mid-1600s. Now, how would you like this if Pascal's phone a friend is, wait for it, Fermat. Wow. Pascal and Fermat really are viewed as the start of modern probability theory. Mm-hmm. So in that same give or take time period, we've got Venn of our friend the Venn diagram and trying to build up what is a formal mathematical framework for probability. Right. We're at mid-1600s now, give or take. Move into late 1600s, Bernoulli. And they're not just one Bernoulli. It is a family of Bernoulli. It of is Bernoulis, a family right? of There's Bernoulis. There's a whole distribution, a whole distribution of Bernoulli's. Ah, I see uh, what you did there. Huh? Is it Bernoulli's or Bernoulli if there are more than one? I don't know. The family of Bernoulli's. We got binomial distribution. We did have an episode on non-normality, right? I keep texting you ideas for episodes and you keep writing back and said, we've done that already. <laughs> Keep cooking with aluminum, Patrick. I think it's working for you. (laughs) (laughs) Demoivre. Man, the French. French were huge. And Demoivre had a lot to do with understanding distributions associated with error and maybe laid a lot of the foundations for the normal curve stuff that we do today. That's exactly right. And plugging things together, one of the big things Demoivre did was took the Bernoulli's binomial. Mm-hmm. We didn't do a episode yet on just general distributions. No, but that's a great idea. Okay, so write that down. So okay. when I text it to you again, as you can say, yeah, that's a great idea. Got it. It's going to happen. The binomial is a probability distribution that governs a series of independent binary outcomes. So coin flips, mm-hmm. things like that. All right, binomial is amazing. So a Bernoulli is the outcome of a single binary process. A binomial is a probability distribution for a set of Bernoulli processes. It's amazing how these things all all fit together. Mm -hmm. But for example, you could use a binomial distribution to find out what is the probability of throwing seven heads in a row out of 12 trials. Mm -hmm. It was Demoivre who showed that in the limit, As your number of Bernoulli trials goes to infinity, the binomial goes to a normal. Yeah. And that is freaking magical because that you do 100 trials, 200 trials, 500 trials, and oh my gosh, it is a beautiful normal distribution. And at one point, you just don't need the trials anymore and you have a single equation that describes that normal distribution. Galton went nuts with that particular idea to the point of even having a device constructed that showed how the balls would drop into the different categories and randomly inform this gorgeous distribution. So there's some game in Vegas. It's like Blinko or Dinko or... Pachinko. It's Pachinko. That's what I said. Pachinko. Sure. There are whole Pachinko palaces in Japan. You got in the phone booth without me. Gentlemen, we're history. We're going to get to Galton in a minute. Fine, fine, fine. I'm only going to tip my hat at a couple more guys before we get to Galton, only because it is so misunderstood of where they were and what they were doing. So we've got Laplace out there who is doing least squares estimation and a hundred other amazing things. But enter Gauss and Markov. We've talked on a lot of episodes about Gauss-Markov theorem. And they're in your backyard, if I recall. And Gauss and Markov are in my backyard. Actually, most of these people are. Yes, yes. I would appreciate it if you didn't tell anyone because they're going to want to come and get them. But yes, we have dragged both Gauss and Markov in repeatedly. Weird fact for the day, they didn't even live at the same time. 
Gauss was in my backyard in 1855, mm. and Markov was born in 1856. Crazy. They were separated in place, and they were separated in time, but they worked on very similar problems, and so they're linked together. Now we're up into the mid-1800s. Mm-hmm. We could do a whole episode on Ketelet. Yeah. Ha ha! Another <laughs> Frenchman. No! Belgian. I officially, on behalf of Quantitude, <laughs> apologize to the people of Belgium. Remember, we're poolside people. Belgian astronomer who had to flee Belgium, if I'm not mistaken, because of some unrest that was going on there. What I love is he coined social physics. Isn't that a great name? It is. And that eventually developed into sociology. Those are all the cadavers that are in my backyard. Yeah, I love how you don't mention bays at all. <laughs> Minor character <laughs> <Whatever>. of historical <laughs> insignificance. So, sorry, Rev. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so you've let me poke at the cadavers of really old guys. Yeah. Enter stage right, Galton. Yeah, I think there's a certain amount of context that's necessary for when Galton comes in. And what I mean by that, it seemed to me as you go throughout time that God's world was sort of shrinking. And what I mean by that was the world was increasingly viewed as this deterministic system, right? So that I think it was Laplace maybe who was presenting his model of the of the heavens and the planetary locations to Napoleon. And apparently Napoleon's response was something like, where is God in all of your equations? And Laplace's response was something like, I have no need of that hypothesis. So the idea that you've got the physics that Newton has created, and this world is becoming more and more mathematical and deterministic to the point where we start to say, well, what can't we understand with these equations that has a Y at some end and a bunch of X's at the front end? But the problem is that there's error in everything that we're trying to do. And of course, you go back and Dumois noted that from the perspective of gambling. But when you try to measure things, let's say you're trying to measure things that have to do with a physical system. Even following Newtonian mechanics, you start to realize it doesn't come out exactly. Well, why doesn't it come out exactly? Well, because we don't measure things precisely, because there's an environment around it, right? We're trying to take all these physical measurements, but there's the air pressure and how far are we from, you know, what's the altitude of where we are? What's the humidity? These precise systems are starting to be realized as not so precise. We have a need for understanding error, understanding things that are imprecise. And that's the world that Galton is coming into, a world where variability and the inability to nail things down is a whole new way of looking at the world. That's a wonderful context to set all of this because you're exactly right. Starting in the 1600s and then moving into 17 and especially the 1800s, the majority of science was governed by the quest for deterministic laws. Mm -hmm. And they had every reason to believe that they existed. There's the constant G, right, is what is it? 9.8 meters per second squared. Get up on the Tower of Pisa and Mm -hmm. drop two (laughs) things of different mass and they fall at 9.8 meters per second squared. I stood up there on the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I spat off the top. Did you count 1,000, 1,000, 1,000? It wasn't exactly 9.8, I'm telling you. There could have been measurement error. My favorite story on that is Lavalier. They say that Neptune was discovered at the tip of a pen. Mm -hmm. Lavalier deduced that the only explanation for the perturbation that was observed in the planetary paths was a particular object of a particular mass had to exist exactly in this spot. Mm-hmm. And they turned their telescopes to there, and that was how Neptune was discovered. Neptune was discovered by a mathematician. But you're exactly right. Even these error terms, a lot of it was chalked up to observer measurement error. Yeah. But there was a belief that if we could just somehow marginalize over those, that we would find the fixed truth. And so this is the deterministic scientific view at the time, and this is the stage that Galton walks out onto. So you take this rich guy at the late 1800s who is very interested in heredity and interested in heredity for reasons that you alluded to earlier that has to do with eugenics. And again, we're going to address this more fully at a later time. But if the world is so deterministic, why is it that I don't know exactly, for example, 
how tall my kid is going to be. I mean, I know how tall dad is, I know how tall mom is, and yet I can't predict exactly how tall the kid is going to be. There are other factors that are coming into play here. Things are not, what's the word I should use, correlating quite the way that I would expect them to. And so you get Galton, who's trying to understand how all these variables are related to each other. A lot of them that have to do with human characteristics, whether it's height or reaction time, all kinds of bumps on the head, right? But we can't determine them. So how can we come up with a system where we acknowledge that they are variable and we characterize how they're related to each other? And so a lot of work had to be done just to be able to start quantifying the extent to which variables do and do not relate. But of course, Galton was the one who coined regression to the mean. If you have an exceedingly tall father, you tend to have a shorter son. And if you have an exceedingly shorter father, you tend to have a taller son. And there's this drawing to the mean. Yet on average, taller fathers tend to have taller sons and vice versa. That notion that it's not just measurement error, that there may be two components that are working Mm -hmm. here. There's some systematic component and there's some unsystematic or some random component. And how can we start to build numerical measures to reflect that? He tried and he came up with a formula for what he called the correlation. But as we mentioned in a previous episode, he had to turn the uh, the heavy lifting over to some kid, his boy Carl. Carl Pearson. This is where a lot of people will peg modern statistics, yeah. right? A lot of what we're drawing out of is there's the wonderful book by David Salzberg, mm-hmm. and it is called The Lady Tasting Tea. Wonderful book. And if you are quanti, this is one that you should be aware of. Mm-hmm. It is a fascinating read. All right, I understand that a book on the history of statistics would draw some people to gouge their eyeball out and put it on the table and push it around with a pencil. It is an engaging, fascinating book, and it embeds all of this in the people and the stories and the periods in which they worked. And one thing that I love about it is, yes, we're up to our eyeballs in mathematics. Many, many of these developments were to solve a substantive problem. Mm -hmm. These were not pure theoretical mathematical developments. As as we'll see, some people were trying to understand fertilizer in growing corn. Some people were trying to understand, remember the distribution of deaths by mule kicks in the Prussian army? Oh, yeah. A lot of what Greg and I are talking about is really, really nicely described in this Lady Tasting Tea, and we highly recommend that book. Carl Pearson, he was born Carl with a C, and changed it to Carl with a K out of respect for Karl Marx. Yes. He was born in 1857 and out in 1936. So we're really talking he trotted out onto the field in the late 1800s. And Galton saw him as this young protege and asked for his help in working the math on some of this stuff. Yeah, and boy did he ever, right? He formalized a lot of things, but working his way up just to start with correlation, he figured out covariance, which we talk about just casually, but he came up with covariance and then the standardized form of that correlation. And if you just press pause for a minute on that, correlation was all the rage, man. Once the correlation coefficient was derived, all the cool kids are doing it, right? Hey, let's correlate this, let's correlate this. But that's really the start. If you think about that as a seed, so much of what we do now traces back to how are things related and how can we put systems in place to understand how things are related. And it all starts right here with correlation and then the regression that came out of that. In the spirit of what my dad would always say as the high school history teacher, it's not possible to put yourself back in an earlier time and know only what was known then. Mm -hmm. The notion of a covariance to all of us is just logical. If you go back and think about what they were working with at the time, think about how a whole lot of us have taught this. You go up to the whiteboard and you draw an XY axis and you do a normal distribution on the Y side. You do a normal distribution on the X side. You drop a vertical line at the mean of X. You drop a horizontal line at the mean of Y. And then you throw in dots in an ellipse and you say, all right, the covariance is looking at how they drop in each of these quadrants. 
above the mean, above the mean, or above the mean, below the mean, below the mean, below the mean, and below the mean, above the mean. You have the four con. It's obvious. It's obvious. Nobody was thinking about these things back then. No. And that notion that there was a joint distribution between two random variables simply didn't exist. The radical change that started what Salzburg calls the statistical revolution was from the desk of Pearson. And that is, instead of looking at the observed data for the sake of the data, right? That was science up to then, was the observations, the observations, the observations, the observations. That's what we were after. Pearson's remarkable insight was we can use these observations to get access to the underlying distribution and the parameters that govern that distribution. And he was the one who first articulated the first four moments of a distribution. That's right. The mean, the standard deviation, the skew, and the kurtosis. The idea that once you know those characteristics, then all the rest just falls out from that. I mean, how cool is that? What? I don't have to know all the observations in a distribution? No, you just need to know these characteristics and all the rest follows. It's a beautiful idea. One of the things I find really interesting is I feel like we forget about this in the work that we do today, mm-hmm. that we're so focused on the individual observations as not thinking about all of our research questions are actually related to the parameters of the underlying line distribution. We talk about individual differences. We talk about why and why how. We talk about residuals. But what are we doing even in a multiple regression model? We are building a model to shift the mean Mm -hmm. of a distribution, not the individual observations. This was a radical idea in that our unit of study from a scientific perspective are the parameters that govern the underlying distributions. And we use the observations to get access to those. And that really is building the foundation of what we, everything we do today. He lived this in the sense that he just had mountains of biological data that he sorted through. In fact, the whole journal, right? Biometrica. I think of that journal in terms of interesting methodological developments. But if you go back in the day, it was really about measuring these biological characteristics. And what I would say is the quest for these particular parameters that govern the distributions of a lot of these physical characteristics. Tying things together, Biometrica was funded Mm. by, wait for it, Galton. So Galton was independently wealthy. He created a trust fund. He founded Biometrica. Biometrica remains one of the premier quant journals in the world. If you go back on JSTOR and do this, after you watch Fresh Prince and Jazzy Jeff, go to JSTOR and go to early papers in Biometrica. They are fascinating. They are sending these poor research assistants to like the jungles of New (laughs) Guinea and to Antarctica to measure penguin beaks. Right. It is insane, but it is all about getting these mass observations to understand the underlying distributions. So another guy who is on the sidelines who is not contributing in a statistical way, but absolutely substantive is Darwin. Fun fact, right? If this is pop-up video, VH1 pop-up video, (laughs) Darwin was Galton's cousin. I'm going to say I did not remember that instead Uh. (laughs) of saying I did not know that. Right. Because I did not know that reflects ignorance. I did Uh not remember that at least suggests that I knew it at one point and have just forgotten. That your head is so full of things it couldn't even hold that anymore. This is like this Escher kind of print of all of these things that are connected. Crazy. This was the start of the scientific revolution. And think about all of you. You have your own data. You have your own hypotheses. You have your own samples that you're working with and the models that you're fitting. When you peel even the very first layer of the onion back, you're actually not studying individual people. Mm -hmm. You are studying the parameters that govern an underlying distribution. And it's a really good reminder to all of us that that's what we're doing. I can do an entire multiple regression model if you give me a covariance matrix. All right, and we talk about y and y hat and y minus y hat is e and the sum of e squared. That's all teaching what we're doing is if you give me a variance covariance matrix, I can do an entire multiple regression. You know what? 
give me a covariance matrix with no missing data and I can do a latent growth curve. And I can talk about individual variability and starting point, individual variability and rate of change over time. Mm -hmm. Those are all based on means and variances and covariances that came out of Pearson's head. Now, the shot clock is ticking. My iced tea needs refilling. We got some other people to talk about. Pearson is a titan. His primary insight is this notion that we move from the data to the underlying parameters of the distribution. Pearson set the foundation for everything that we do. The blind spot that Pearson had was all you needed to do was get enough observations send enough research assistance to the jungles of Borneo, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you could get the population values. Right. The idea that the real world functioning out there didn't have access to these unlimited volumes of data. We didn't have research assistance that we could send to Antarctica. Real researchers had to deal with what we could call small samples. And the idea of these large sample approximations that everything follows this beautiful normal distribution or whatever other distribution we're talking about just was not proving accurate for those folks who had smaller sample sizes, such as, oh, I don't know, someone who worked at the Guinness Brewery. Dear Mr. Gossett. Billy. (laughs) Billy Gossett (laughs) made his first appearance on the podcast in the limerick episode and yes. it turned out that he was a very grumpy yeah he, he <laughs> fell on some hard times later i think uh is is that yep that is my surprise for the day that is william seeley gossett better known as student father of the tea test proud son of guinness arguably ireland's most famous statistician huh Blah, blah. Let's get this over with. Deal's a deal. Where's the stuff I'm supposed to read? So if you haven't been exposed to uh, Billy Gossett, go back to the Limerick episode from season (laughs) one and, and catch that. Gossett's a guy after my own heart, undergraduate degrees in math and chemistry. Um, as I have, which in no way makes me gossip, but he couldn't really get Pearson's stuff to work. Try though he would with the smaller samples that he had access to within the Guinness Brewery, he really couldn't get that stuff to work exactly well, with what he was dealing with. And so he had to he had to think beyond that. So let's peg some dates down. 1876, Gossett is born. He passes away at an unfortunate early age in 1937. Mm-hmm. But as Greg said, he is a chemist and a mathematician, and he is hired by the Guinness Brewing Company in Dublin, Ireland. Mm-hmm. Go team. <laughs> substantive question in need of a statistical solution. Mm -hmm. This is so important to all of us as we're doing substantive work, substantive questions that we want to bring quantitative rigor to. And here is a brewer for Guinness. They grow yeast in jars. It's a living entity. Mm -hmm. And they have a a big vat of mash that they're going to make their Guinness beer out of. And they need to have as precise as possible a combination of yeast and mash to allow the fermentation so that no matter where you get a pint of Guinness, it tastes the same. Right? Mm -hmm. Imagine this. In the 1800s, it's quality control. Mm -hmm. Depending upon the yeast and the mash and the fermentation processes, you can get one batch that tastes different than another batch. And the powers that be at Guinness Brewery wanted consistency. Mm -hmm. They would take a sample of yeast out of these jars of living yeast. They would put it under a microscope, count the number of yeast cells, whatever they are. I don't know. I'm not a yeast guy. (laughs) But they would estimate the concentration in a jar, and then they would add that amount with Mm -hmm. respect to how much they wanted. Well, Gossett noticed that Well, these are just small samples from a population of yeast that has the audacity to keep growing. Mm -hmm. So it's an infinite population that you're drawing a sample. And he wants to build a model that allows for sample-to-sample variability in the estimate of the concentration of yeast. And this was something that Pearson really didn't allow for. He had to stick a crowbar in the stuff that Pearson had done and allow for this variability. Thus enter student. Yeah. 
Guinness <laughs> did not allow employees to publish because they were afraid of trade secrets. Not only afraid, because some guy previously had published under the Guinness name and what he published did sort of tip their hand with regard to some trade secrets. That's exactly so right. they got burned. They got burned by some guy. So fool me once. Yep. I love reading some of Gossett's correspondence and letters. People wrote each other letters and saved them. So there's yeah. this amazing documentation of the conversations. And none of us have that now. Oh, my God. Could you imagine if people right. read the emails you and I have sent to one another? <laughs> I'm I'm destroying my hard drive right now, today. He was self-effacing, he was modest, he was humble, but he was going home at night at his table trying to work out the mathematics of this and was running into walls that he was not able to climb. Mm -hmm. And he would start a correspondence, not only with Pearson, but also with young Fisher. Very young Fisher, college-age Fisher. Apparently, Gossett, such a nice guy, and who had a lot of contributions. I think the vast majority were published in Biometrica, if I remember, including the one that, you know, he's most well-known oh. for, which is what we call the T distribution now, which he called the Z. But yeah, such a nice guy that he was. He was actually one of the rare human beings who could go back and forth between Pearson and Fisher, who had a vitriol between them that is its own story. But yeah, um, so he was a bridge between the older world of Pearson and the emerging world of Fisher. He would send Fisher some analytic derivations. Fisher would write back. Gossett would then forward Fisher's <laughs> mail to Pearson to ask Pearson to help him understand what Fisher said. And Greg, yeah. I really like that notion of the go-between between the old guard and the new guard, as he was yeah. almost like this bridge. Yeah between these two because yes Pearson and Fisher hated one another and at one point Pearson just blocked publication of anything Fisher wrote in Biometrica <laughs> the paper you should be aware of if you're quanti is 1908 it is by student and it is the t-test it is student's T. And as Greg rightly notes, is if you go to look at the paper, which I actually assign, I have an undergrad honors class in quantitative psychology, and I assign Gossett's 1908. It's student's 1908 in biometric. It is page after page of equations, right? As I don't expect anybody to understand it because I don't understand it myself. <laughs> but the text that is in there is so beautiful. Yeah. And is so motivated by a clear and present problem that is trying to be solved. It is absolutely gorgeous to read. And if you're quanti and you are at a cocktail party and somebody says something about a T-test, you can be intolerably self-righteous and say, well, it was Gossett and not Student who did that work. And it was not the T-test. He originally named that the Z distribution, but it was renamed later. This is how you end up where Greg and I are today, by saying things like that at parties and people roll their eyes and walk away and you turn up standing by the only other guy who finds that interesting and then during the conversation you say hey we should start a podcast uh, uh -huh. <laughs> but the cool thing was that i think gossett's work on the what we now call the t distribution sort of seemed like it was solving a very real problem but it felt kind of isolated the cool thing is that fisher actually took that idea and recognized that that was the seed of something much much bigger the idea of what ultimately became a whole family of distributions that characterize this, which in the end is not just about the mean, but it's about probable error associated with a lot of different things. So this, what seemed like to many people as sort of this one-off, like, oh yeah, when you got small samples, you got to do this little, what we now call T thing. No, it became a seed for ultimately F distribution, all of this bigger picture, which I think is very cool. And it's what my dad would sometimes refer to as a lens. It changes the lens through which you see what you're working on. Yeah. And Pearson's lens to the very end was you could get the population moments and have them in your back pocket as known and fixed values. That was his lens. Mm -hmm. And Gossett adjusted that lens to say, there's inherent sampling variability in the statistic itself. And that, if you think about it, is a radically different way of thinking. That we have a distribution of observations. Yeah, everybody's cool with that. 
there's a distribution of means of observations, and that's a sampling distribution, right? This is everything that Gossett worked on. All of us have been exposed to this in some way or another. A standard error is a standard deviation of a sampling distribution of a test statistic at a given sample size. That was unheard of in Pearson's time. Go look at this 1908 paper. Because what all of this distills down to after pages of derivations is the inverse of the square root of n. Yeah. It is breathtaking. That alone is, but you're exactly right, is this has now refocused the lens in a whole new degree of thinking about uncertainty. It's not just firing an RA because their measure of the star (laughs) is different than the other person's measure of the star. We've now adjusted the lens to introduce a whole new concept of uncertainty, and that's in the sample statistics themselves. And not only is it in the sample statistics themselves, but in a way that we can start to write known probability distributions for and make use of those. And that's where really Fisher comes on stage. I agree. And unpacking everything that Fisher did is a big task, right? I mean, he did so many things and they're things that we take for granted in many ways, right? We just throw out these concepts and throw them out, we will, here in just a minute. My sense is that he just wasn't an altogether pleasant guy, all things considered. And so from things that I've read... He kind of liked for sport, picking on things that Pearson had done, correcting some of the little errors here and there that Pearson had. And as we said, so contentious was the relationship between them. And Pearson was the one in power, said, yeah, you're not publishing in my journal, which uh, obviously hurt Fisher's career. (laughs) Did I mention before that I spent time with one of Fisher's students? I got to spend an afternoon with C.R. Rao. And it wasn't just me. It was two other people. It was our good friend, Roy Levy. It was the two of us and my six-year-old daughter at the time, Sydney. We sat there with Ral for hours, just sitting in the hotel lobby talking about all kinds of multivariate things. And and the best part was Sydney was, would sit at a table and she would color a picture. And she, she brought it up and she held her crayon drawing in the face of C.R. Rao. And she goes, it's a giraffe! <laughs> And he was so sweet. You know, it's a lovely giraffe. And it was the best. So completely surreal. But we had asked him a little bit about being Fisher's student. He was one of the last, if not the last, of Fisher's students. Rao was very, very polite, kind, deferential, and thoughtful person. He sort of summed it all up with, well, he sort of left you to your own devices, left you to your own thinking. And, you know, and and I'd said things like, and this probably wasn't very thoughtful on my part. I heard he was maybe a little bit unpleasant. And, you know, he sort of had this controlled smile where he didn't let the corners of his mouth go up too much, you know. Mm -hmm. And and so you got a sense of acknowledgement. I mean, I have to tell you, that was so cool to be talking to someone Mm. who worked intimately closely with Fisher along the way. And how fun was Sid? I mean, to have Rao saying, yes, that is a beautiful giraffe. I just love that image. It is like talking back in time. You're not reading about it. You're not seeing a letter. You're not reading a book that is someone else's opinion about the letter. But that's totally consistent with all objective evidence. And it's actually kind of a right-left punch. Not only does he appear to be an extremely unpleasant person, but he embraced eugenics. All in. Yep. He was all in to the bitter end, and it is hard to parse apart the science, the contributions, the developments, the impact on what we do today with the person. We just simply have to be aware that Fisher was a, a horrible person who had what we think now of some pretty horrible thoughts. Mm-hmm. But analysis of variance, analysis of covariance, degrees of freedom, p-values, maximum likelihood estimation. Do you want to pick up from here? Well, the idea of experimentation, designing experiments, the role that randomization plays in the process of designing experiments. His fingerprints are on everything that we do today. The cornerstone of our job was developed by a eugenicist. Yeah. He went, again, as a substantive person to Rothamsted. Is that right? I the think farm? that's right. Wasn't that yeah, the, the farm outside of London. And he was the statistician to try to understand the relation between different types of fertilizer 
and the growth of corn. Yeah. All that he developed there, it was all to solve a problem. He was trying to understand how one could isolate the causal effects of fertilizer in crop yield, and all of those things that we just listed out came from that. And it seems so obvious, right, when people were saying, well, you know, the crop seemed to grow better over there. So what, you're just putting fertilizer over there and you allow it to be confounded? He's like, no, let's take these plots of land and split them. Wait, what would you call that? Well, I, let's see, how about <laughs> split plot? Yeah, I mean, these to us are just fundamental design principles, the things that the most naive of researchers would poke at confounds for studies that didn't do these kinds of things. But there was a time... And that time was less than 100 years ago where people couldn't parse those kinds of things. They didn't know how to do it. And he did it through design. He did it through randomization. And it is a foundation for what we do today. Again, throwing years, we got 1890 to 1962. Yeah. All right. So when were you born? Nah, I, he, I missed him. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. But you and I, I mean, I think you're only a year older than I am, but yeah, we missed him by a couple years. Mm -hmm. You're a baby boomer and I'm not. Oh, shut up. Did you know that by one year? <laughs> Whatever. The, the whole idea that baby boomer, boomer extends to like 18 years after the war. It's like, hey, honey, the war ended and I'm still feeling frisky. Okay, boomer. <laughs> <laughs> I get to say that. Whatever. Again, it's that lens. Things that are just obvious to us were not obvious to anybody then. Yeah. You literally could have a grad level class in Fisher's readings and thinking about all of his contributions. He invented maximum likelihood. As an undergraduate. As an <laughs> undergrad. Yeah. So what'd you do today, honey? How was your day? Did you invent maximum likelihood? Did you invent analysis of covariance? Oh, by the way, out of nothing, did you develop degrees of freedom? And your answer was, I skipped class and, and drank 11 Coors Lights. That's what, that's what you did today. Um, maybe. Maybe. <laughs> and look at where I am today. Yeah. Oh, good uh -huh. point. One thing I find interesting, some of the sins of our fathers are hung on Fisher in a way that's not fair. The Fisherian legacy, the harvesting of asterisks, right? Paul Meal had that great yeah. essay of the harvesting of asterisks as a science of looking. What he meant was look at a table and get all the P less than 05. That was not on Fisher. Not at all. And the P of 05, although he has a casual throwaway line that says something that occurs maybe less than 1 in 20 may be of significance. And he was using the term that it might signify mm -hmm. something, not be important. If you read some of the historical stuff, he absolutely was using p-values. He mm -hmm. absolutely was doing hypothesis testing. But he tended to work in a bit of a trichotomy. If a p-value, as we think about today, was very, very small, so 001. Mm -hmm. And again, remember, he's working on trying to understand differences in fertilizers. Yeah. If it was a very unlikely event with respect to chance alone, that probably signified something meaningful, mm -hmm. that it's something that we should pay attention to. If it was a probability that was 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, you know what I loved? was he didn't say that it did not exist. It was of an effect that was unimportant. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that, ah, the null hypothesis is true. It's that even if there's an effect, it's too small to be of importance. And then he had the middle ground, and this is what everybody forgets about, Mm -hmm. not only historically, but in their own work, is if it kind of fell somewhere between really small and really big, it was something in need of further study with a more refined experiment. Yeah. He was the father of replication. Ooh, nice. Wasn't that nice? That was really nice. For me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. He did not set up this artificial dichotomy that we seem to live and die by today. There are things we can absolutely blame him for, but this surely isn't one of them. That's sort of a conflation between the things that he derived and the folks who came just a little bit toward the tail end of his big run. And maybe that's the coda for this particular discussion, which is Jersey Neiman. So Neiman comes on stage. He is born in 1894, and he passed away again 
folks, these are pretty recent stuff. 1981. Yeah. All right. We're talking Van Halen years. Right? I mean, if we're going to put it in, in sure. historical periods that are meaningful, yeah. I saw Van Halen in 1981. Nice. And Neiman was living. But Neiman had a mathematical perspective on this. He started working with Carl's boy, Egan. Yeah. Right? So by that, Yeah, by that time, Carl was kind of becoming a grumpy old man. And the world was moving away from him as people like... Fisher were really running forward with things. And I think he was kind of grouchy and didn't have many students working with him. But his son was a really, really capable uh, statistician. And that's who hooked up with Jersey, Jersey and Egon. There's a lot of confusion when people talk about, well, Neiman Pearson is, they think it's Pearson Sr. It's actually Pearson Jr. Yeah. And that's another historical murky part is there were two Pearsons who were both important. The colloquial punchline of Neiman's approach is it doesn't make sense to have a null hypothesis. That's what Fisher was working under. Mm-hmm. What is the probability that you would have observed your results if this condition held in the population? That was the null hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But Neiman argued it doesn't even make sense to think about that as a framework for decision-making if you don't have some alternative. Mm -hmm. And when people talk about Neiman-Pearson hypothesis testing, that is what really brings into modern time a null hypothesis and an alternative hypothesis. And I got to tell you, where the sins of our forefathers are hung on Fisher, it's even worse of the sins of our forefathers hung on Neiman and Pearson. Because what is codified in intro textbooks as the Neiman-Pearson mode of hypothesis testing, Neiman wrote in the 1930s. He didn't think that this was an ideal way of moving forward, but it was a way. Articulating some alternative hypothesis, and by the way, there are an infinite number of (laughs) of alternative hypotheses, but when you come up with a system that leads you to evidence to reject a null hypothesis, what is the alternative? And the way that we sometimes think about it is nebulously, it's in terms of some other alternative, but they tried to be very concrete in terms of choosing an alternative and then using the evidence that you have to make what wound up being a decision between accepting or retaining, as I prefer, the null and embracing some alternative hypothesis. This was a really, really important idea for a variety of reasons, some good and some bad, for sure. One of the things that they were very clear about in their original writings and something that we as a field are not adequately respectful of and incorporate in our own work Mm -hmm. is Neiman, in my opinion, I've not seen people write about it in this way, but I feel this when you look back at his original work, he was telegraphing almost a model comparison-like approach. Do you agree with that? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Because the thing that he advocated is this Nolan alternative only works if there are a small number of alternatives that are precise. So everybody think about your null hypothesis and everybody think about your alternative in 95 out of 100 times, that alternative is whatever the null is not. Yeah, that's right. Did you know Jersey's in my backyard? I could drag (laughs) him in. I did. Yeah, he would roll over in his grave if he saw what we typically do now. Sure. That the null hypothesis is there is no effect and the alternative is there is an effect. We work under fundamentally cowardly alternative hypotheses. It's just whatever the null hypothesis is not. And it is not fair to blame the current state of hypothesis testing on Neiman and Pearson. It's not fair to blame Fisher for the way we use the p-value. It's not fair to blame Neiman and Pearson on the way that we've bastardized hypothesis testing and all the bashing of null hypothesis significance testing, which there is absolute merit to, I would say. They're not really culpable. It's a tormented logic, and they were fully aware of that. If you lined up Fisher and Neiman and Pearson Jr., Mm -hmm. 
none of them would endorse the null hypothesis framework that we use today. That's right. In a period where horrible human beings exist, Neiman was a gem of a human being. Mm -hmm. If you read some of the historical biographies of him, how he supported young people, how he supported women in the field, how he supported underrepresented people in the field, how anyone who walked up to him had his undivided attention. For sure. And if you imagine the historical context of the things that he had to go through and what was going on in Poland leading up into that time period, it's nice to know that he is one of those good guys. So even though what we do today would not be recognized by Neiman or Pearson and what their intent was. Having that thing at your fingertips to isolate yourself at a cocktail party Mm -hmm. is what did the Neiman-Pearson perspective give us that is so important today. Well, as soon as we bring an alternative hypothesis on board, and as soon as we think about adjudicating between two potential conditions, Mm -hmm. that formalizes type 1 and type 2 error And when we have type 2 error, that formalizes power. And Neiman was all over the notion of power, and in large part to adjudicate among different statistical tests, because now that became a characteristic that one might select one test over another because it had greater power. And so when we think back to the legacy of Neiman and Pearson, that, I think, is one of the most important adjustments to that lens is not just Fisher in talking about the null hypothesis, but Neiman helping us think about what is the probability you're going to find an effect if an effect really exists. That's the alternative hypothesis. That's the complement of type 2 error, and that is statistical power. Exactly. And that sets the stage so well for the things that are to come. And we've telegraphed them a little bit, But certainly the idea of power is something that has become, continues to become increasingly important in the way we think about things. And the future of that is going to be something we should talk about. And as you already said, the idea about the importance of models and being able to make selections among models and things that we can be so bold as to say we have eliminated that from contention. We have falsified that. So there's a lot of stuff to come, and I think you can feel it brewing based on the cast of characters that we've had so far. And I don't know if you could hear it over my microphone because I have the windows closed here, but there was a grunt underground out in my backyard in the general direction of Popper. Oh, really? <laughs> okay. Because um, you use the word falsification. Yeah. <laughs> and we are going to come back to that. But you and I said at the start of this, hell or high water, 90 minutes. We are at 99 mm-hmm. minutes. Mm-hmm. It is still June 18th. Nine episodes. We're going to do a summer nine episodes. Uh We're going to be lucky to get three. Maybe this is a good coda to draw a circle. We got the old guys. We got the gamblers. We get up to Pearson. We get to Fisher. We get to Gossett. We get to Neiman and Pearson. And this has set the stage for, oh my gosh, so much of what we do now. But it doesn't set the stage for everything. And I think we should draw a circle here, Mm -hmm. and I think we should wrap up. And at some point, now you're going to go put your boys in camp again, aren't you? Uh, Yes. Is this not the one where one of them made 20 bucks for eating a cicada? (laughs) Am I wrong on that? No, that was $47, and it was was a drunk neighbor that had him do that. But, uh, (laughs) (laughs) no... Quinn runs the underground snack black market at camp, and you know that there's a problem when your kid comes home from summer camp with $400 in his pocket. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not only that, but the summer camp is how to live in a hole in the ground in Michigan, (laughs) northern Michigan, for seven weeks. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so anyway, somehow, somewhere, we'll have another recording session. And I think what we should do is draw a second circle that is going to be a Venn diagram that has a little bit of overlap of what we do now, but has a lot that's not overlapping. And to go back to Galton and that measure of co-relation and talk about how did that branch Mm -hmm. take us into measurement and factor analysis. Just for those of you who are listening, when Patrick says we should 
put a coda here. What that means is he has to pee. So the longer I keep talking here, the more uncomfortable he gets. So on that note, thank you yeah. all for being <laughs> well, part of the summit. Patrick, Patrick, this is, <laughs> and uh, you're go you hop know in what, the pool? Greg? You wrap us up. I'm uh, goodbye, everybody. Greg is going to wrap things up, and uh, I will talk to you next time. Uh huh. There he goes. Everybody, he's he's actually hopping in the pool. Um, <laughs> No, no, because they told me there's a special chemical that if you pee, it turns green. It's a lie. It's a lie. Would you get us out of here, please? What is our exit? All right. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for tolerating our history. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again, whenever that may be. Yeah, thank you so much, everybody. And stay safe and have fun. And we'll talk to you whenever we talk to you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your poolside entertainment. And do please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, for past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get amazing Quantitude merch to protect you from the sun at RedBubble.com where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, a podcast sufficiently disorganized to not even have a summer tagline or sponsors. <laughs>